So in today's podcast, I want to go over QE. I want to go over how that affects the price of money. And I want to go over how you should invest accordingly to uh, the situation with the Federal Reserve and the price of money. So uh, we want to go over what QE is and how it affects the value of the dollar. Now, a lot of people uh, think that QE alone causes inflation. A lot of people think that uh, if we have QE, we're going to have the CPI increase. Now, that's not really true. And there's two aspects to it. First of all, uh, QE alone is not really inflationary. I think it supports inflation, but its ability to support inflation is not very high. And the other aspect to it is QE happens when you get massive deflation. That's when, uh, you know, when you get massive deflation, when you get recessions, that's when central banks, uh, you know, pull out their monetary uh, tools and do QE and do other types of asset purchase programs. And so it's more so counter deflationary than inflationary. So instead of getting the deflation that we would have had gotten, we get uh, kind of the inflation that that kind of counterbalances the deflation. Now, uh, you have to realize that QE alone is not really inflationary. Uh, it it uh, promotes inflation, but alone it doesn't cause a, a large amount of inflation. In fact, it, alone, without anything else happening, it doesn't cause inflation at all. At, lo- at least not consumer price inflation. And so what QE, quantitative easing, is, is basically the Federal Reserve will buy treasuries from primary dealers. Uh, now, usually, these primary dealers are banks, um, but the, the Fed also buys uh, treasuries or Sometimes it's other assets like mortgage-backed securities. They usually buy from either primary dealers or they buy it from the uh, financial economy, uh, which is just on the open market. And so the uh, basically the banks uh, usually are the main sellers of these assets. And so they'll sell their assets to the Federal Reserve. Most of the time, they're selling treasuries. And the Fed comes in here and the Fed says, Hey, you've got, you've given me uh, all these assets. And so in return, I'll sell you, or basically I'll pay you actually, I'll pay you with bank reserves. Now, the the bank reserves, you can't actually use it to spend and you can't use it to invest. 
but uh, I'm pretty sure you can buy treasuries with these bank reserves. And so what happens is the treasury account uh, gains money because someone bought their treasuries and now the Fed's holding the treasury accounts, uh, you know, the U.S. Treasury's uh, debt. So basically the, the U.S. Treasury gets more money, but the bank's money, the bank's cash that they've spent to buy those treasuries uh, are, are getting kind of locked up, basically. You could think of it that way. And so they can't really spend money uh, in the real economy. Now, the problem is uh, what happens is when, uh, you know, QE alone uh, will give the government money, but that alone isn't really inflationary. What matters is if the uh, Fed does QE, and the government starts running large fiscal deficits. Right when that happens, the government spends money into the real economy, and then that could create a large inflationary cycle. Now, why that hasn't happened uh, in 2020 is because we've gotten massive deflation, and again, the government just canceled out the massive deflation with. Uh, large amounts of inflation, and so we didn't see uh, much. We didn't see a, a very different change in the CPI, where normally we should see a deflationary consumer price index. Um, but the government, of course, was sending everybody checks, and so that that and of course you have to remember that supply chains and uh, production decreased by quite a bit and people started saving their money they stopped spending as much and so there was a, an inflationary and a deflationary balance the problem however is once that uh, deflationary that deflationary let's say cycle ends now it's not really a cycle because we haven't actually experienced it. We just kind of crossed it out. Um, but once the COVID fears are gone, if people still are financially uh, frugal and they don't want to go out there and spend a lot of money, then maybe we won't see much inflation. Uh, but if people are going into the financial economy, going back to their old spending habits, and the government keeps on running these large fiscal deficits, it's very likely that we will get inflation. But uh, that brings me back to, you know, QE alone is not, it's not intrinsically inflationary. Uh, and, and you see that in the 2008 recession, where the Fed was doing well, back then they were considered large, but today, I mean, they're not as they're not nearly as significant anymore. But they, you know, back in two thousand eight to two thousand and twelve, they did three. Uh, well, they did four rounds of QE, and that didn't cause inflation. And one because we had uh, massive deflation, 
the government also ran fiscal deficits at that time. Well, they run fiscal deficits every year, but I mean, they were running larger than usual fiscal deficits. And so inflation and deflation kind of cancels out. But what's very important for inflation to happen is, is two circumstances. If the government doesn't go out of its way to spend money into the real economy. So uh, the, the way that QE could cause inflation without the government is if the banks that uh, receive the bank reserves lend against their bank reserves. So, uh, you know, we, we operate under a fractional reserve banking system. And now most large banks, um, most banks, uh, but the ones that are large, have to have at least 10% reserve requirement. So if I want to lend out 100 bucks, I need $10 in reserves. If I want to lend out uh, 1000 I need $100 in reserves. And so... Uh, well, banks actually don't lend out cash uh, they, or, or actual money. They basically create money uh, out of thin air, you could think. They create bank deposits out of thin air. And I could go over, you know, I'll go over the kind of the history of that uh, to give everybody a clearer understanding because I think if I, I just say it, uh, it's going to be very confusing for people who don't really understand it. So basically, in the past, what banks would do is banks would have gold, uh, because before gold was money, but I, I'm talking about uh, money backed by gold, not actual physical gold, but banks would, would have physical gold, well, I get, okay, I guess that means they have both gold and uh, bank notes. So let me basically reword that. Banks had physical gold, which was money back back in the day. I'm talking, you know, way before uh, the the gold standard. Uh, back in the day, gold and silver were money, and, and the banks had precious metals uh, in their reserves. And they issued notes, bank notes, to people so that they could, you know, people could exchange with paper instead of exchanging with the physical uh, metals because paper is much easier. And so if they wanted their metals back, they could just come back to the bank and exchange their notes for the gold. So th they would first go to the bank and somebody would deposit the gold there and would receive uh, banknotes backing up their gold so they could go back and claim their gold whenever they wanted to. And people did exchange in banknotes too. So, it, you know, if I was to perform a service for you, you could pay me in a bank's banknote. And if I wanted the physical gold, I could uh, take the note and go to the bank and cash it out for real gold. And so that was how the banking system worked back in the day when everything was simple. <laughs> now it's, everything's complicated. And the bank 
you know, would issue notes, which was as good as money because it had, well, 100% backing by gold. But then banks figured out they could lend more money if they just lended people these notes that weren't 100% backed by gold. And so I, I, I could just lend out as many notes as I want and claim that it's backed by gold, but I don't actually have to have the actual physical gold in my reserves. And so that's what banks did. And so they could technically issue as many banknotes as they want. Um, and it wouldn't really matter as long as people didn't come back and <laughs> actually ask for their gold back, which is what happened um, in the 1930s in the Great Depression. And, you know, a whole ton of banks went bankrupt because they didn't have enough uh, bank reserves to to uh, support their, you know, the people trying to draw the money out of the bank. And so basically, uh, you could think of banks as be, being able to create credit, which is uh, a, a pr technically a promise to pay, uh, or money, which is... Uh, today, credit and money are essentially the same thing. So you can basically think it as uh, banks could just create money. But there, there are limited um, abilities to create these uh, loans and to create money is kind of limited to their profitability. And so it wouldn't make sense for me to create a hundred you know, excess loans or whatever, if I don't think that those loans are going to be profitable for me. And of course, they need a reserve requirement, which is now 10%. But let's get back to the QE part and how that affects the, uh, you know, inflation. So when the Fed does QE and uh, they basically print bank reserves, uh, for the banks. So think of yourself having a, a bank account at some random bank. You know, the, the, the banks that you're banking with probably also has an account with the Fed, which is basically the same thing as you having an account with your bank. And what they'll do uh, with the Fed is, you know, let's say the Fed prints... $10 worth of bank reserves for the banks. Well, now the banks have the ability to lend an extra $100 that uh, they basically just create out of thin air. And, and uh, you know, they have 10% to back it up, which is the $10. And so that is one way that inflation can be created through uh, QE. And that's the more common way but the way that would be created is if, one, if consumers are willing to borrow, and two, if banks are willing to lend. And one thing that happens if you look at the, the, the bank reserves, the excess reserves of the bank, they have been increasing. And so that either means that consumers don't want to, lend, uh, don't want to borrow 
or that banks don't want to lend very much. And it would make sense because debt uh, is at very, very high levels. And so most lenders would want to charge high interest rates on the, on the lending or else they wouldn't want to lend uh, much money. And I, I think that's some type of situation you have with the, with the banks where they are seeing high risk but low return on lending. And the other way that the, the printing bank reserves could cause inflation. However, this would not, this would probably be um, anti-deflationary is if people wanted to, uh, everybody wanted to take their money out of the bank. Now that, that would be deflationary because the bank wouldn't be able to serve all of the money because the bank just printed credit, uh, which is your deposits at the bank. And let's say everybody uh, wanted to cash their deposits at the bank, which is just numbers on a computer and exchange it for cash. Well, banks don't have a uh, one-to-one ratio of deposits, you know, checkable deposits, which are your deposits, to cash. So maybe they'll have, you know, $15 in cash and their the customers at the bank will have $100 in deposits. So not everybody could get their money back. Um, but if everyone tried to take the money, well, then that would probably be de- deflationary because they're, um, if it was an inflationary environment, I don't think many people would want physical cash and I think they'd just spend it. And of course, wanting cash isn't necessarily an inflationary move either. But uh, if, if, the, if the central bank comes, uh, comes and, and prints enough money for uh, everybody or more people to be able to withdraw cash out of the banks, that could also be technically inflationary, but that's very rare. And that is also counteracted by some very likely earlier deflationary uh, proceeds. And so what does uh, QE and, and, and fiscal uh, spending, how does that influence the U.S. dollar? How does that influence currencies? Well, the thing is, it's hard to say because currencies, they usually are cyclical uh, relative to both equities, commodities, and other currencies. And so it's, it, it's hard to say that uh, something that happens once will happen all the time. But usually uh, when QE happens is, is following uh, a recession. Because usually uh, people, you know, the central banks won't do QE for no reason. Now, they, the Fed did not QE, which is basically QE, but shorter term, in uh, September of 2019. Now, that was not caused by a recession, but that was caused by some pretty large 
issues in the repo market where, where interest rates pretty much skyrocketed uh, for, well, they say it's an unknown reason, but that was not large scale. That was relatively small. Well, it was big, but compared to now, it's just a rounding error. And so the size is completely insignificant if you compare 2019's QE to 2020, 2020's QE. And, but usually when you have large-scale QEs, it's caused by recessions or, well, we haven't really had a depression with a QE, but if we get a depression, we'll certainly get QE. And so usually when we get depressions, the U.S. dollar will rise because people believe that the U.S. dollar is a safe haven asset. Um, that's not necessarily true, but, it, you know, as long as people believe something is uh, safe, a lot of people pouring into it will make it safe. And the, the, if you have deflation, that is good for currencies because that means currencies gain value relative to uh, assets or other goods. Now, if you look back in 2008 to 2014, that was a big uh, bull market for commodities. And I think a big reason is because from 2008, where they started doing QE, up until 2014, where they stopped doing QE, everybody thought there was going to be inflation or hyperinflation. And uh, because they don't really understand that QE alone doesn't really cause inflation. And the fiscal deficits back then wasn't really enough to cause inflation. It was more so to counteract the massive deflation that was happening. And so I think all of this monetary policy in the short run, uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily beneficial for the U.S. dollar. But I think sometimes the reasons why you'll have QE, which is a recession, will be good for the U.S. dollar. And then QE is kind of uh, it, it's not good for the U.S. dollar, but the recession is great for the U.S. dollar. And so usually in an, in an environment where you have QE, because you have a preceding, preceded uh, uh, recession, uh, I, usually the U.S. dollar will not go up too much and it will not drop too significantly. You know, in 2020, uh, the U.S. dollar actually went up, and then it kind of came down, and then it kind of went up again. And I'm talking about the dollar index, uh, which is not necessarily the best measure because you're comparing the dollar to a basket of other currencies and how well the other currencies are doing. Well, that depends on a lot of their policies over there and how they're equities are doing also. But in the long run, it's not good for the dollar. And in the long run, it's good for those uh, for those countries who will benefit from a falling dollar. It's good for those countries that are keeping their 
their currencies artificially low and selling their stuff to the United States at a discount price. And that's one of the reasons why the U.S. runs trade deficits all the time, because it has the reserve currency status. And when you have the reserve currency status, everyone wants to give you a discount because they, everyone wants your currency. And so it's very hard to not run trade deficit when you have the reserve currency. But so, you know, QE in, in, in the long run, it's not good for your currency because eventually it, it, you're going to get some type of inflation because, you know, money... If money goes, if money falls out of your pocket, it's probably going to fall into someone else's pocket soon. And so I think that uh, long run, uh, now maybe that's three to five years, maybe that's 10 to 12 years, maybe that could be as soon as one to three years. Or, I mean, I doubt it's going to be in a few months, but... I'm sure that in the long run, the U.S. dollar will suffer and currencies, uh, I think especially in countries in Southeast Asia, will do well. And I think their equities will do well uh, as a result of a falling dollar. Because especially when you look at the long-term debt cycle, that is a big problem that no one has really figured out how to deal with and more and more uh, more and more true is no one seems to care about it the bigger it gets you know the bigger the the debt gets the less amount of people seem to care about it which is uh, quite it's quite ironic now I don't necessarily think that the dollar even if it suffers through a downward cycle I don't necessarily think you know, it's going to lose the reserve currency status. Now, it might, but for the dollar to lose its reserve currency status, you either need someone else to replace it. Like, you know, as you see, uh, the, the, the United States has replaced uh, Britain. Uh, or you need, I mean, you need countries just to abandon the the let's say, idea of a reserve currency. So everybody has their own currency and you don't really have a reserve currency. Now, that's possible too, um, but the chances of that happening is not incredibly high, especially since everybody is so interconnected. But it's certainly a possibility. Um, and I don't think we're going to go back to a gold standard, mostly because of politics, unless if we see some just very big, massive type of inflation around the world, uh, then it's possible that some countries may implement a gold standard. But for the United States to do it, I mean, it would have to cut pretty much all of its government spending. And that's not a very likely thing, especially when you have the Democrats in office. So, I mean, how should you invest... Uh, when the dollar is likely to go through a bear cycle. Now, I think you should, uh, if you're going to go for currencies, maybe you should go for currencies in countries that have better monetary policy 
better fiscal policy, so less spending in, 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 in fiscal uh, areas. And of course, you know, more control over the monetary system, uh, not letting interest rates stay low for too long. And for the long term, I think that precious metals are something to be uh, that could be considerably beneficial uh, from inflation. And equities will also be great, at least relative to cash and bonds. Uh, tips, which is the you know inflation protected uh, bonds, treasury bonds. I, I think they will. I mean, I think they'll do better than cash and, and and normal treasuries certainly. But first of all, you have to trust the inflation numbers, and second of all, uh, which is the CPI, and second of all. Uh, the yield on them are, are incredibly low, so I, I wouldn't recommend them necessarily. But through a stagflationary uh, environment, I think they're certainly a great option. Um, foreign equities would be even better than a lot of American equities. And for I, I don't necessarily know about foreign bonds because it would really depend on the country. But I think short-term bonds are a good option uh, for an inflationary, a, a likely inflationary event while equities are overvalued, which is something you see today. And uh, precious metals are, again, good. Now, I'm not personally a physical precious metals person, but um, I think an ETF would do well and uh, maybe mining companies. Now for mining companies, you really have to take a good look at the management team and you have to do a lot of research. Uh, whereas owning the physical metal is a lot easier to handle. But, you know, if you think that the United States or probably the whole world might receive inflation, that is certainly an option that could benefit you a lot.